We'll be talking about the impact of gun violence in this podcast. If this is a difficult topic for you, please take care when listening. I'm leaving Littleton, Colorado right now on this pretty day. I'm heading to the Frank DeAngelis Community Safety Center in Wheat Ridge, Colorado. I'm going to be meeting Sean Graves for the first time and I'm really excited to meet him. It's just so exciting that I get to meet with another survivor. I was a senior when he was a freshman. I obviously knew of him and knew that he was physically injured at Columbine. Yesterday I watched him walk at his graduation in 2002, not using his wheelchair. It was such a powerful moment. He did it. He had a goal to walk across that stage and he did it. But I'm interested to know what it was like for him to go back to school and what that was like after going through everything that Sean has gone through. He went into, you know, school safety and I think that's just remarkable after going through something so traumatic. After these interviews, I get really like emotionally exhausted and emotionally drained. Survivors each have their own stories and I'm gonna go hear Sean Graves' story today. My name is Amy Over, and this is Confronting Columbine. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome to this week's episode with me and Amy Over. I'm Nancy Glass. Well, there are some iconic images from Columbine, and one of them involves the man you're seeing today, Sean Graves. It is incredible to me that you have, well, you had never met him before. Never. We know each other now. We're, we're good friends now, but um, yeah. Why did you want to meet Sean? Well, first off, I wanted to meet Sean because he's a Columbine rebel. And we have a lot of commonalities of that day being there on April 20th. But... I really learned about Sean's sheer will to survive. He remembers every detail about what happened to him. He was only a freshman in high school when, when this happened, and he was shot so many times. And like so many of us, he just didn't believe it, couldn't believe what was happening. Even while he was being shot, he wasn't even processing any of this. And even more than that, the path his life has taken has just blown my mind and you will not believe what he does for a living. 
On April 20, 1999, Sean Graves met up with two friends at lunch, Lance Kirkland and Dan Rohrbaugh. It was just about the time the bombs in the cafeteria were supposed to detonate. The bombs didn't go off, so the killers changed tactics, and only two of these boys would make it out. I had a test that I was up all night the night before studying, and that was right after lunch. Because I was literally one test away from having uh, the grade that I needed to get my permit. And that was a big thing for me, was getting my driving permit. So I was studying. Yeah. Second uh, semester, freshman year. I remember meeting everyone in the cafeteria for lunch. There we were at the table. For whatever reason, when I got there that day, my wallet was not in my pants. But I got, you know, some money. I'm gonna get a soda. So uh, I remember Lance said, let's get out of here. He wanted to go to Clement Park. Mm-hmm. And I said, all right, let's go. Well, I remember talking Dan into it because same scenario, Dan didn't have his money for whatever reason. So out of the three of us, none of us brought our wallets. No money for lunch. No. Right, and it's yeah. like, well, let's just get the hell out of here. Yeah. So I was already worked up because I had that test following and I knew I had to get an A on it. So I was you know, a little worked up about it, but that's in my head. and. So we hit the vending machines. Dan got his his usual uh, Milky Way out of the machine, and I got uh, Cherry Pepsi, which that'll be the last time I ever bought Cherry Pepsi, ever. But you got Dan and Lance. They got their bags, and we hit the vending machine, and we're out. And that's when we came around that corner, and I don't know if you remember, but they had that chain-link fence right outside that door. So we go up and around, walking around that chain-link fence, and instead of staying on the sidewalk, going up the steps that are poured nicely in concrete, I think Lance was the only one that really stayed on that. Dan immediately darted off into the dirt, and I think I was heading into the dirt myself. So I was gonna walk up the hill with them. And that's where they were parked. Yeah, and then they were up at top of that hill where that sidewalk goes into that, uh, that other entrance up top, and we were heading up. So that's when we saw them. They had duffel bags at the feet, and I remember standing, they're standing there with, you know, all black. They got their jackets kind of halfway unbuttoned open. And then that's when I started seeing magazines coming out. And so they're loading up, but they had that look of confusion. Like they're looking at each other like, what the hell? Something's not right. While most people think of Columbine as a mass shooting, it wasn't the killer's original plan. They had made dozens of bombs with the intention of blowing up their classmates and teachers bombs were set to go off during the first lunch period when there were the most students in the cafeteria around 11.15 in the morning. The perpetrators planted two duffel bags with propane bombs surrounded in shrapnel. They were placed near beams that would have brought the second floor down and incinerated anyone who was there for lunch. The killers had hidden the bombs between class periods and then met up outside the school ready to shoot down survivors who made it out. Despite months of bomb-making practice, the bombs failed. The guns only came out when they realized the bombs didn't work. They were gonna blow up the commons, and those bombs were supposed to go off in a series and just wipe out the entire commons, and that 20-pound bomb would have taken out that corner, which would have, in theory, dropped the library Mm -hmm. into the commons. We have these sidebar conversations, like, well, what are we watching? You know, something doesn't look right. And we're like, oh, it's gotta be the senior annihilation game that we've been hearing about. None Mm -hmm. of us had details. 
so which is heads, so ironic that we were playing that game. Yeah. It was like a Nerf war game, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah, last man standing. Last man standing and bragging rights. We finally get to see what the hell this game's about. And we're watching them load. And maybe they're gonna go down that hallway and shoot Sid with the paintball. Let's go see this. Now we got something to watch. That's when magazine was in, chambered, and then that's when the popping started. And they, they unloaded towards the building out of line of sight from us. What we didn't know was that's when Richard and Rachel Scott were shot. Rachel Scott and Richard Castaldo were the first victims at Columbine. Rachel was shot in the head and chest and died instantly. Richard was shot in the arms and torso. He survived, but his spine was severed and he was left paralyzed from the waist down. As soon as that started, we stopped moving again. And at this point, they're monkeying a little bit and we're like, okay, well, those are realistic paintball guns. And so we decide, well, let's get a closer look. So we start pushing forward. So after the second round of us deciding, let's get a closer look, that's when they turn the fire to us. And again, I think it's paintballs. So they're spraying from my right to left. I remember Dan got hit. Danny Rohrbaugh was shot three times, once in the knee, then in the chest, then in the abdominal area, piercing his liver and stomach. The shot to his chest stopped his heart. He fell over and died quickly. Even then, Sean thought he was witnessing a game. His brain was not registering the horror. One of the rounds went through Dan and hit the ground right behind him. The trajectory of that round hit that dirt and it just shot it in my face. And I remember looking back all simultaneous, like where the heck are these paintballs? And as I'm looking back, that's when I took a round to the shoulder and it didn't hit any bone or anything, it just grazed me. But it was deep enough I could sink darn near three of my fingers into that gap. No idea I was shot, but I just felt cold on my neck and I looked back forward and that's when I took three across the abdomen. And again, the only way to describe, because those didn't hurt at all, the only way to describe that was it felt like something shouldn't have been there yeah. and then it was gone. That's all it felt like, it wasn't pain or anything. Did you realize then, like, I, I've been shot? Oh, I had no idea. In fact, it took me a while before I figured out that I was actually bleeding. That's when Lance went down. I don't even think he knows he's been shot at this moment. And I yelled out to both of them, you guys have fun with this, I'm going back inside. So as I'm turning around to run, no idea I've been shot four times at this moment, my entire body is behind that concrete corner pillar. The entire thing, the only thing exposed to my backpack. Well, I didn't realize is when I was running across that fence, I was a moving target and they were shooting at me and one round entered my backpack. That bullet hit my notebook and spun around and literally changed trajectory and aimed straight at my spinal cord. It hit my T12 and blew my entire vertebrae up and then it shot out my hip. I'm yelling. It hurt like heck. Felt like I got kicked by a mule straight into the spine. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I'm convinced there's a prank dart sticking in my spine. That's what paralyzed me. Somebody get the stupid dart out of my back. 
Sean, you're literally stuck in the threshold, watching everything happen. Did anyone come to your aid? Yeah, and they're yelling, there's no dart. Honey, there's no dart. Well, I can't move my legs. And they got the door held open and somebody stopped him and they said, no, it's his back. It's a spinal injury or a neck. Can't move him. Don't move him because he's paralyzed. So they left me. So I'm literally halfway in the doorway, halfway out. Laying on the ground, I can see the vending machines and then straight ahead of me is the teacher's lounge. And I remember the teacher who stopped him from pulling me into the building. She stopped. And I remember her looking over and that's about the time I heard the shotgun blast. And then her eyes lit up and she hit the ground like that. And then the glass, it just rained down glass. I remember glass hitting, turned into pebble as that safety glass. So there's glass all over the floor and she's looking at me and I'm looking at her like, oh God, what, what is this? No idea this is gunfire. I'm still not believing it. Yeah. Still think it's a prank. And I remember hearing running. I have no idea what happened to Dan or Lance. And I remember Claybold stepped over me. I'm still on the ground. You know, I don't know what's going on. I'm in shock. I'm a 15-year-old boy who's paralyzed from the waist. You know, so I'm yelling, and uh, they went upstairs. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. So they went up top. I'm hearing commotion in the library above. I'm laying there, and at this moment, I start feeling wet and cold wet. And I sunk three of my fingers right into the gash on my neck from that shot. And I pulled it back, and it's just drenched and dripping with blood. And I'm like, oh, God, this is, okay, this is serious. And at that moment, I started wiping it on the ground. I don't know why. In my head, I was convinced they were going to come back again. I had no idea they have already been back. I could hear the steps coming down those stairs and the boots, and they came down around that corner, and at this point, they're taking deliberate, somebody was aiming at those bombs, and I hear a, a pop, and then I, you'd hear like a ricochet or a metal contact, and that's when I started getting pelted in the head mm-hmm. with uh, fragments of bullets, because they were shooting at that propane bomb a couple of feet from my head, 
on the other side of that wall, trying to set that thing off to drop that corner. Thank Christ they didn't get it, but they did fire off one of their, I'm gonna call an incinerary device, because when they hit one either on the table or by the table, I remember feeling just a waft of heat, and it sounded like somebody lit a five-gallon jug of gas that somebody dumped, and just the that sound, that whole corner that I was staring at just lit up orange for a you know a couple of seconds and then died down, and that's when the the sprinklers hit. The sprinklers at this point just dumping gallons of water a minute, and I'm sitting there and I'm trying to play dead, and out of nowhere, I believe his name was Jay Bershnell. We called him the cussing janitor at the time. You would have thought he was sliding into home. He went sliding across the floor with his radio and he grabbed my arm and he's holding my hand. He goes, I'm not leaving you. And I kept telling him, get the hell out of here. They're coming back, you gotta go. And he goes, I'm not leaving you, I can't. And he goes, I'm gonna go help some more people and I'm coming back. I said, get the hell out of here. Cause I didn't want him dying too. He kept telling me, pretend you're dead, pretend you're dead. And I'm like, I'm already on it. And I'm spreading blood, you know, and trying to make it look like I bled out and struggled. You know, I've been losing so much blood that I started kind of bearing in and out a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I remember I pushed myself back the best I could to try and get a glimpse of Dan and Lance. And I remember seeing Lance, but from my angle, I couldn't see he was shot in the face. Lance had been shot four times. While he was on the ground, he heard steps and put his hands up and cried out for help. Then he heard, sure, I'll help you. And the killer put the shotgun behind Lance's ear and pulled the trigger. All I could see was him pick his, his head up and he, he looks stunned and dazed and he's out of it. And I just remember him spitting up a lot of blood and I didn't realize he was shot in the face. And I remember telling myself, or just saying calmly, I'm like, oh, oh, Lance. You know, as he's spitting blood out, I remember saying that to myself, I'm like, oh, Lance. And I remember coming back too, but when I did it, it almost like I got shocked, like it just woke mm -hmm. up. And I remember feeling really cold and stiff, looking around and I could hear the helicopters above. And I'm like, oh, thank God, help's finally here. And I looked back and there's a, there's a freaking ambulance parked feet from the back, from my legs. And meanwhile, I'm looking over and I remember seeing a dark uniform, so I'm assuming a Denver PD kind of picking Dan's head up, his body. And I remember seeing Dan's face for the first time and he was all purple. Right then I knew Dan's gone, but there's Lance. And they're shooting at us again. And I remember him trying to throw my, my butt into the back of the ambulance in a hurry. Sean made three lifetime friends that day. They were in the battle zone together. His rescuers were Monty Fleming, Jerry Lasasso, and John Elward, who braved gunfire to rescue him and Lance. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so fat. And I remember telling him that, I'm so sorry, I'm so fat, you know. <laughs> no. They get me in there, and on top of me, they throw Lance. And to this day, they apologize to both of us for doing that. And I'm like, I don't care, you saved my life, but I'm trying to talk to Lance. He's incoherent. One of the other EMTs jumps in the driver's seat. I look back at Monty. He's got that look, like literally just went to war. And at this point, it's the first time I'm getting a glimpse of the magnitude of this. Paramedics rush Lance and Sean to the hospital. Miraculously, both young men eventually recovered from their injuries. 
Sean Graves was shot six times by the gunman at Columbine. One of those bullets put him in a wheelchair. But at a news conference with his parents and brother, Sean says he's regaining feeling and some movement in his legs. As of right now, most of the muscles in my legs are working. It's just a matter of getting strength back. I watched you walk across the stage for your graduation. I just bawled my eyes out like, what a tough, like you're amazing. Well, thank you. Can you explain a little bit about like what was going through your mind? like Walking across the stage? Walking across the stage, <laughs> like you did it. Sean Thomas Graves. John Graves shot multiple times during the tragedy and spent most of his high school years in a wheelchair. Today, determined to walk across the stage to get his diploma. I was repeating in my head, don't trip. In fact, I've done that twice in my life. One was at our wedding, <laughs> and I almost tripped. In fact, I caught myself and I put my hands up like I did it, but um, going across the stage, it was nerve-wracking. Luckily, I had my cane and my braces on, though, so. And the easiest way to describe the braces uh, would be Forrest Gump, where he's got those locking leg braces on. Yeah. That was exactly what I had on underneath my dress pants. In fact, I had three sizes too big just so I could hide them and I could still lock the leg on my, well, excuse me, on my right side because that's the weaker of the two. Watching that was so powerful. So powerful. People ask how I've fared so well throughout everything, and it's because we had each other to fall back on. We did. Years after the massacre, Sean was asked to speak at a breakfast honoring first responders. The same teacher who wouldn't let anyone move Sean for fear of damaging his spine was there. She was overwhelmed with relief upon seeing him again. I think it was Patty Nielsen. Don't quote me on that, though. Okay. She came out of nowhere shaking. That's how emotional she was. And I remember she bear she asked if she could hug me, and I'm like, absolutely, you know, we're calling mine. I hug everyone. She spent the last 20 years believing that her actions on stopping them from pulling me into the building got my life taken away. So she spent 20 years blaming herself. She had me mixed up with Dan. Mm -hmm. But if I had been even a couple of inches farther into the building, they weren't gonna grab me. Mm -hmm. And so because she stopped them from pulling me in, she actually made me available for them to save, but she thought she got me killed. That resonated with me because she spent 20 years, I mean, there was a lot of closure for a lot of the Columbine family, but I think something that everyone overlooked was the, the fact that these first responders were suffering mm -hmm. just as bad as a lot of us are still to this day. Mm -hmm. It's amazing to me, just the ripples one day created throughout the community. I wish mass shootings would stop. They're not going to, but... We can slow them down. We can slow them down. And we are more prepared than ever. Did you have a lot of support after the shooting? We talk mental health. Yeah. In the beginning, I wouldn't give in to believing that I was mentally impacted by the event that I had gone through. Instead, of my, my focus was purely on my ability to to walk again. Getting out of that wheelchair, and let's be honest, while it wasn't unheard of to have a school shooting, it was unheard of to have one this scale. And so everyone came out of the woodwork as far as uh, mental health 
or crisis intervention or whatever their background was, they wanted to help. Unfortunately, nobody had the expertise or the training to deal with something like this because it was unheard of. And so the, the help that was being provided were offered, while it, it might have been beneficial or helpful for somebody, I personally found no benefit in it. And I refused to continue down that path. I just backburnered it or I ignored it altogether. And it took me years after the fact to get to the point where I could acknowledge that I had PTSD. My mom told me, you weren't shot, so get over it. See, in the beginning, I was ignorant to that too. They would talk about, on the news, the victims, and they were always, or the survivors, and they always referenced people in the building, and I'm like, they don't count. They weren't shot, they didn't live through it. And it took me years to actually put things into perspective and realize Sean returned to the stage where he received his diploma in 2002 to speak to the community for the 20th anniversary. Not all scars are visible on the skin. On that day, there were close to 2,000 people inside, students, staff, and teachers. On that day, those people walked into that building, but not a single one of us walked out the same. Everyone was broken. Every day is a great day when you're not worrying about your appliances and home systems. And that's what you get with an American Home Shield warranty. With American Home Shield, you can protect your home and wallet from unexpected breakdowns like leaky faucets or faulty water heaters or wonky thermostats. Now that's something to celebrate. When it comes to protecting your appliances and home systems, don't worry, be warranty. For 20% off plans, go to ahs.com slash Wondery. For more details, see ahs.com slash contracts for coverage details, including limit amounts, fees, limitations, and exclusions. For somebody who's locked in a corner classroom down the science hall, listening to that for hours, nobody made it out the same. They spent hours believing that they're moments away from death and there's nothing that they can do about it. We all shared in that battlefield that we're all suffering from. I actually started to realize that I got it pretty easy as far as the mental side of things because my interaction that day with those two was pretty cut and dry. They attempted to kill me, they didn't, they paralyzed me, probably saved my life. Yeah, my PTSD started when I sent my daughter to preschool for the first time. I ended up having my first panic attack and I started dealing with chronic panic attacks for years later. Yeah. And they are debilitating and awful, but I thought I was okay. Leading up to the 20 year, was the first time I've ever experienced an anxiety attack in my life. Uh, my mom swears she's had them, you know, and I never experienced it myself, so I didn't really buy into it, I guess you could say. Uh, my mom, you know, she'd suffered from those, well, ever since. It's something that you can't physically see a scar or anything, mm -hmm. so you're like, whatever, that's not, that's made up. Mm -hmm. Until I had one myself, and then I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, you think you're dying. This is eye-opening. 
What's going on, you know, am I dying? Am I having a heart attack? Mm -hmm. This is something that I've chosen to talk about a lot because I see the benefit in it. If I could just reach out and help just one person. Mm -hmm. Dan's not gonna die in vain because I'm gonna let his story die out. I don't believe in that. So if I can help just one person, then I'll continue to do that. Tell me something about Dan. I didn't know him. Dan always carried a cigar lighter in his pocket, as long as I knew him. So let's just say seventh grade on, he never smoked, but the kid always had a lighter in his pocket specific for a stogie. <laughs> and he would carry that thing. I mean, you need a lighter to light a firework? Yep, Dan's got you covered. To me, that's a big thing. That, that's where that, that memory of Dan comes from as far as my yearly cigar for him is because he always talked about smoking stogies and he always carried a lighter. You went back to school in a wheelchair, so you chose to go back to Columbine? When I first went back to the building, when I was paralyzed from the waist down, in fact, the FBI, they asked me straight up, why did I go back to Columbine? And they kept asking the same question again. And the truth is, is there was no way I was not gonna go back to that school. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I didn't understand parents' concerns or worries sending their kids back into that building until I started pointing out to everyone that this is going to be the safest high school in the United States. While Sean's injuries prevented him from pursuing his dream of working in law enforcement, he has truly come full circle. He's currently working as the school safety and facility liaison for Jefferson County Public Schools. His job is to oversee and maintain the Frank DeAngela Center for Community Safety. The facility is a retrofitted Colorado elementary school equipped with state-of-the-art mass casualty tragedy simulations and is the only one of its kind. They provide tactical training for groups from all over the country, everything from local law enforcement agencies to the United States military. So my main responsibility at the moment is overseeing and uh, scheduling out and maintaining this building. Awesome. You guys do all your training here. Yeah. The big thing about these classrooms back here is we're still set up with furniture. You'll see we have some mannequins, silhouettes. We've actually got a breach door that we're in the process of moving over this week. Wow. So our breach door is training-wise like a SWAT team, pretending they're, they're reaching into the building from the outside. So they actually got to kick the door through. Okay, and that's gonna go here. Yeah, and they'll dump into this room. And then we've got different mannequins. A lot of these kids were uh, volunteered. Their parents signed waivers and let them do their photos. None of them, except for this guy, are holding a weapon. A lot of them wow. stapler, you know, just gives you an appreciation what they got to look for. Yeah, this is eye-opening, like, wow. Do you hear the gunshots and stuff, like when they're going through the training tactics? I do. Tactics? I'm blessed in a sense that I don't get triggered by any of that. In fact, years after, I got more involved with going to the shooting range and, and getting on top of that. For me, it was more of a control thing. Oh, wow. So some of these cutouts have weapons. Only one. He's over here with uh, a rifle. This is a popular room with training. Mm -hmm. Basically using an iPad, and it's a map layout, I can create complete chaos in this building. This is our single lab. Okay. So the same 
set up as the shoot house, only this one is a single screen, projects across this whole wall. So they'll put a scenario up there. Yeah, everything as far as the technology in here is all paid for through a grant or donation. Is this career therapeutic for you? Do you feel like you're a part of the solution? For me, it's therapeutic to be on this side of the curtain because I get to see everything that's going on in the background. And I can tell you that Jeffco was doing everything in its power to keep these schools safe so that parents like us can send our child to kindergarten and not have to worry about it. Now that I've seen it from this perspective, I understand everything that's going on in there. Yeah. People don't understand the amount of technology that are in that. There's no safer place. I feel safer today yeah. being here, knowing what is being done to keep kids safe. If you remember in the beginning, everyone blamed uh, law enforcement. They, mm -hmm. they blamed SWAT. They didn't go in right away. Why didn't they go in right away? You know, well, that was the way it was trained. That was tactics. That was protocol. Was to set up a perimeter and then make entry into the building where we didn't know at the time that that was a problem. We had to learn from our mistakes, and we continue to evolve and continue to learn. There's not a single portion of this team that I'm still not blown away by the amount of personal sacrifice and the fact that I have yet to meet a single person that would not, in an instant, put their life at risk to protect my child or anyone else's child. And to me, there's no words. It's just, it's love. It has been an honor to talk to you today. Oh, thank you. You too. It has been an honor. Rebels for life. Yep. We <laughs> so did you know him in high school? I did not know Sean in high school at all. He was a freshman and I was a senior. It was such a large school and it's hard to know everyone. So when you heard him talk about his experience, what was your response to that? It was hard to, to hold myself together. It was so hard to hear the graphic details outside of the school because I was inside the school. It's so hard to hear what he went through almost 22 years later, the graphic details. I'm just, I'm so glad he survived and his story is heartbreaking. How many kids do you think on that day thought this is a game? I mean, I was playing that game that whole week. Uh, leading into prom week, I was playing that annihilation game. Can you explain the annihilation game? It was water guns. You had your secret person that you were assigned to, and then you would try to sneak around and you'd try to, to get them. My boyfriend, I was at his house the weekend before and his friend had me. So he uh, like trapped me at <laughs> my boyfriend's house and ended up shooting me. I got out of the game. So I was pretty bummed out. We went to like great lengths to find your person and get your person. It was really, it was really a fun game, but it was kind of ironic that we were playing that yeah. leading up to this. He said something about how he never bought a, uh, a cherry Pepsi again. Yeah. Did you have something like that? Was there anything that you thought, I cannot do this ever again, it will trigger me? That is such a good question. Platform shoes are kind of a thing for me. I don't think I will ever wear platform shoes because I was wearing platform shoes when I was trying to run. And also, I just have quirky, weird things where like I can't have my back to a window, like at a restaurant. 
I always have to know where my exits are and to make sure there are multiple exits. What surprised you the most about what Sean had to say? You know what? His resiliency is what surprised me the most. And then to see him 21 years later in law enforcement, you know, doing these simulations and hearing gunshots and preparing for these. I'll tell you one thing that gave me pause. When he used the phrase mass tragedy simulations, isn't it stunning that we have to have mass tragedy simulations? It is. But we have to prepare for this. I mean, look at what happened in Boulder, you know? Sean was an amazing interview. I think everyone needs to hear his story. I think so, too. And I think in listening to him, you also understand more of what everybody has gone through. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. On the next episode of Confronting Columbine. There were about 25 girls that were coming out of the locker room to go to class. They had no idea. They were laughing and joking. They would have been dead. And so I ran towards them and I said, we have to go. And the gunman is coming around the corner and girls are screaming. And I got him down that little hallway where the gymnasium was. Pull on the door, it's locked. For more information on The Rebels Project or to donate, please go to therebelsproject.org and see me there. Want to know more about the Confronting Podcast? Please follow us at Confronting Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for photos, additional content, and discussions about the podcast. We are all confronting something, and I look forward to continuing the discussion from our episodes over social media with all of you. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for going on this journey with me. Confronting Columbine was produced and hosted by me, Amy Over. Executive produced by Nancy Glass, Andrea Gunning, Ben Fetterman, and Carrie Hartman. Produced by Julie Clark. Associate producer, Trey Morgan. Editing by senior audio editor, Matt Dovecchio. Editor, Drew Wallace and Dean Welsh. With production assistance from Megan Paisley and Brianna Fars. Other members of the production team include Kristen Melcuri. Pete Ward, and Natalie Thomas. Music and original composition by Mide Music. Confronting Columbine was produced by Glass Entertainment Group, Glass Podcast in partnership with Wondery. Answers for Claudia, a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus, explores a 15-year-old mystery, the disappearance of Claudia Lawrence on March the 18th, 2009. Claudia was a seemingly happy 35-year-old when she vanished without a trace. There was no crime scene, no CCTV of Claudia leaving her home, and no body found. She simply finished her shift, phoned her mum for a chat, and was never seen again. Claudia's mum, Joan, is now 80 years old, and she thinks this might be her last chance to find answers. I'm journalist Tom McDermott, and when I offered to help Joan, I had no idea what was in store. In Answers for Claudia, I speak to the people who knew Claudia, interview past suspects, and investigate the rumours and theories that surround this case. Why are the residents of the village Claudia lived in still so frightened? And what can we find out about the people who were closest to Claudia? You can binge Answers for Claudia exclusively on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app.